Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Simon. I'm delighted to be sharing with you this morning. Before we tuck into God's word, let's just pray. Lord, we thank you that you're a speaking God. You've spoken through your prophets. You've spoken through creation. You speak to our conscience and our hearts. You speak through the Bible. You speak by your spirit. And preeminently, you speak through Jesus, your son. And we pray today, Lord, that you would speak to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, today, as Mark said, we start a new series that will run for the next few weeks, looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this is one of four lockdown letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to young churches when he was in uh, Caesar's palace jail in the early AD 60s, awaiting trial at which he would be found guilty and beheaded. But he's writing these letters, and this is a beautiful one that we're going to spend a few weeks with. I was once in a prison jail, a jail in the army. I had uh, joined up and then developed a back problem and I was being medically discharged and they didn't know where to put me so they put me in this military prison, this jail for a week before I got my papers and uh, I was sent packing. It was a real eye-opening experience. I have two enduring memories. The first uh, was of the bed, which was a wooden plank stuck in the wall and a gray blanket. That's what I remember, being very cold. And the second thing I remember was a sergeant who was up on a charge in the room, the cell next to me, up all night, freaking out drunk, screaming, messing up the whole place. And in the following morning, I was uh, responsible for cleaning up his cell. Since then, as a minister, I've visited a number of prisoners, a number of prisons and jails, and I've read a number of books from those who've been in prison. And I'm currently reading one by Yevgenia Ginsberg, who spent 18 years in the Russian gulags uh, and also in Siberia in labor camps. And she, like all the other books I've read from prisoners, goes into great detail about the atmosphere and the conditions of the jail. She talks about the food and her emotions and how her body reacted and the sounds and the size of the cell and the daily routines and the personalities and characters of the prisoners and of the guards. She says this, taking in all I could of my surroundings with my trained solitary eye. Now, Paul, in chapter 1 of Philippians, three times tells us that he is in chains. We don't know if that's literal uh, or figurative, but he is in a cell. He is in jail. He is in prison. And yet, he tells us nothing else about his condition, nothing else about his environment, nothing else about what is going on. There he is 
in lockdown, and yet his perspective is looking up to God and looking out to the church and the world. All we know is that he's in jail, yet we know nothing about that experience. He's in chains, but his heart is unchained. And this letter of Philippians is an unchained melody that rises up from his soul as he sings out to God, as he expresses, and we'll come back to it over these coming weeks, over and over again, this theme of joy. And as he seeks to care, encourage, and equip the other churches. I want to make three points this morning. The first is this, that Paul's unchained heart is thankful. He's just so grateful. Verse 3 says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Almost the first thing out of his mouth after he's introduced himself is to say he's thanking God. You think, hang on a minute, Paul. Are you having a breakdown or what? You are in a filthy, rotten cell. You are awaiting trial where you will be beheaded. You already have the sentence of death upon you. You know it. And yet there he is in his cell, able to dictate a letter and send it out to his church, and he feels liberated. He's the freest man in the jail. And he's thanking God. His spirit soars. It's quite remarkable. Though he's in jail, he's not bitter. He's not resentful. He's not self-pitying. He doesn't blame God. He's not cursing his captors. Instead, in lockdown, he looks up. And he looks out and he gives thanks. I find it remarkable. You know, so often uh, I find myself just looking inside and going down. But here he is, looking up looking out, looking to others, and thanking God. Paul has actually been called the apostle of thanksgiving. All his letters uh, give thanks to those to whom he writes and give thanks to God. His life, if you like, is a letter that fizzes with gratitude to God. Later at the end of this letter in chapter 4 verse 6, he says, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. In everything, with thanksgiving. Wherever Paul was, whatever he was doing, whatever situation he found himself in, whatever pressure, whatever exigency was bowing down upon him, it couldn't stifle the thanksgiving. Why? Because he had never got over God rescuing him and saving him. And because Jesus was so near, because his understanding and appreciation of the gospel was so present and tangible to him, it just, as it were, put a light on everything else. It couldn't, and, and his situation and circumstances couldn't dim this wonder and this glory of Jesus and what he'd done for him. Paul never got over the wonder of Jesus. Yet, I find I can often do, and my situation and circumstance can take me down, and I wonder if you're the same. And the first encouragement that we've got from Paul in this letter is, let us give 
thanks. Let us look out, let us look up, let us look at what we've received, and let us be a grateful people. You know, failure to be thankful set Adam and Eve up for the fall. I mean, there they were, naked, in a garden, and told that they could eat of any fruit in the garden but one tree. I mean, what a blessing is that? Paradise with your perfect partner, tailor-made for you, all of these fruit trees. I mean, it's epic. Just one tree they couldn't have. And rather than be grateful for each other and all the things that God had given them, it, they wanted the thing that they were told, don't do that, that'll mess you up. And that was the one they went for. St. Paul in Romans tells us that the very heart of sin begins, Romans 1 verse 21, by not worshipping God and giving him thanks. Well, Paul got this. He understood from first to last and all the way through, we're going to thank God. I think sometimes the angels, you know, at their choir practices, they just sort of stop and they just drop their jaws and think, these Christians, look at, look at what they've been given. Angels work for God, but we've been invited to be part of the family of God. And they look at us and think, how can they have such ingratitude? The German existentialist philosopher Martin Heidegger said, Denken ist Danken, which means thinking is thanking. And we've got to give a bit of thought to this. Think. Come on, church, think about all that you've got. Look around. Look at what you've been given. And thank God you've got breath in your lungs. You've got work and rest and play and food and clothing and shelter and a bit of money and friends. We've got the NHS, internet access, the government looking after us, the justice system, running water, electricity. I'm going to finish soon. we got things to give thanks for. So many things. Not to mention God who loves us and gave his son for us. And who's brought us to himself. And who's forgiven our sins. And who's turned our life around. And who's spent forever getting heaven ready for us. What an amazing thing. Let us be a thankful people. Paul never got over the wonder of it. And you shouldn't get over the wonder of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was in jail, wrote, uh, and his letters from jail uh, have been published, and at the end of his time there, he was martyred. He said this, it is only with gratitude that life becomes rich. Let us be a grateful, thankful people. That's the, the first chord, if you like, of this unchained melody that goes up from this cell from the Apostle Paul. Secondly, the unchained melody, Paul's unchained heart, is prayerful. Verse 4, he says, In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray. You see that? Can you hear that there? In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray. Three times, we've got all. Three times. And you'll know in Hebrew idiom that when something is repeated three times in close proximity, it's a kind of real waiting and emphasis of it. All prayer, all prayer, all prayer. 
and in Greek all means all. Paul was praying all the time for all of them. Look at who he prayed for. He says, I pray for all of you. Not praying for himself. Not praying for himself. He didn't feel sorry for himself. He was thankful. And he's not just praying for himself. He's interceding for others. He's not praying to be vindicated. He's not praying to be released. He's not praying for his enemies to be cursed. He's praying for everyone else. And he's praying God's blessing on them. And his prayers are not some sort of Dickensian, sentimental, God bless everyone. It's not like that. He's naming them. And he's cherishing them. And he's presenting them before God. I think he's visualizing them. Every morning in my prayers, I'm trying to visualize someone to pray for and to, to bless them. So often my prayers are just taken up with myself. And they're taking up with asking God for things I haven't got rather than thanking him for what I have got. I'm trying to learn from this. I hope we're going to learn as a church from Paul in jail. I've read several biographies of the evangelical statesman John Stott. You know, for about 50 years of his life, he got up every day at 5 o'clock. And between 5 and 6.30, he prayed for other people. He opened up a book that he kept, and it was constantly being renewed, this worn-out kind of journal. And in it was list after list after list of names. Some he'd take out after a while, others he would add in. And he specifically targeted them, and blessed these individuals. Time magazine once said that John Stott was one of the 100 most influential people in the world. They were thinking about his teaching ministry and his lecturing and his books and his church. I think that they were right, but what was more influential would have been those daily prayers, naming people and blessing them. Who do you pray for? Apart from yourself and those in your immediate environment, who are you praying for? I want to encourage you this week, start a new book. Prayerfully ask God for a list of people and then bless them every morning and wait and see what happens. And look how Paul prayed. This wasn't just routine by rote. Verse 7, he says, I feel this way for you. He says, I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, I yearn for you. This was empathetic. This was passionate. This, this wasn't just some intellectual kind of thing, cerebral, oh Lord bless them. No, he really cared and he carried them on his heart. In the Old Testament, we read that the high priest would wear on his chest 12 gemstones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would go before God, interceding for them, go into the holy place. The incense would go up. He then, once a year, go into the holy of holies before God, carrying these tribes on his chest representatively. That's what Paul is doing in his prayers. And why does he do that? He cares for them. But why does he do that? Because he knows God is is listening. God has got a big ear and he can hear and he's got a big heart. He too feels and he's got a big hand. He can make a difference. And Paul knew that. 
and he cared and he carried them. We need to get a bit of this ourselves. I do. And then look what Paul was praying for them. Verse 9, he says, and it, this is my prayer. Go on, Paul. What is it? That your love may abound more and more. That you'll be marked by love. And that it'll, ab it'll abound. It'll just abound to you, through you, over you, out from you. And he says that it'll more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. What's he praying for? That they would know more of Jesus and that they would show more of Jesus. That they themselves would experience it and then that they would express it to others. More. He's the apostle of thanksgiving, but he's also the apostle of more. Why? Because he knows what God's like. And he knows that God is generous. That God is an outgoing, giving God. He's just lavish. God doesn't give us blessings by a pipette. He just pours it on us. And Paul knew that. And Paul wanted the church to get it. And in all Paul's prison epistles... He's encouraging others to get more. And later on, we're going to see chapter 3, he wants more for himself. But he's a man of prayer. And he encourages us, it encourages us to be people of prayer. Why? Because prayer works. Prayer gets through. Prayer makes a difference. I want to encourage you, saints, in this lockdown time, look up, look out, and bring together what you see with the Lord in prayer. I mentioned Evgenia Ginsburg's biography I'm reading. I'm halfway through. It's completely amazing. But she recalls, she's a, uh, an atheist Jewish uh, academic. She was imprisoned under the Stalinist purges 18 years there. And she was in a labor camp working as a tree logger. And it's uh, minus 10. And she says... A group of Orthodox believers one Easter day requested not to work, but to spend the day praying. And she said, they, they said to the guards, we will do double the work tomorrow, but can we just pray today? And they said no. And the communist guards beat them and drove them back into the forest with their rifle butts. And when they got there, the women who were loggers just put down the axes and sat down and prayed. They started being beaten up, and then they were dragged out onto a lake, a frozen lake. They had to take their shoes and their socks off, the rags that they had, and stand on the frozen ice. And Ginsburg, not a Christian, not at all religious, she's amazed by this. And she said, they just stood there and continued praying barefoot, on the ice. She said, we begged the guards weeping to stop this torture. It went on for hours. And then she says, it is a remarkable fact that not one woman who had stood for so long on the ice went sick. Prayer transforms the lives of those that we're praying for, but it also transforms the experience of the person who's praying. Why doesn't Paul tell us any details at all about his cell? about who he's locked up with, about his food, about his miserable conditions. I'll tell you why. Because he's so thankful to God for
for Jesus. And he's so prayerful for others that actually he's lifted up and lifted out and transforms the very context that he's in. Let's be thankful, saints. Let's be prayerful. And then lastly, the unchained heart, the unchained melody is missional. Paul here in lockdown is unable to share the gospel, although we're going to see he's sharing it with anyone that he can around him and words get, going to get round. But Paul doesn't retreat into himself. He doesn't retreat into a kind of inner life and spirituality. But still there is this blazing passion that's burning in him ever since he met Jesus on the Damascus Road to tell other people that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus saves. He just wants to get the word out. And the gospel is not changed. He says here, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work among you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. So here's the thing. What is the good work that God began and that, that, that is to continue until the Lord Jesus returns. Some people have suggested it's the good work of sanctification. I'm not sure that's right. I don't think that's what the text is saying. And certainly experience shows that often that good work does not continue to completion. The greatest work, of course, is the salvation that comes through the gospel that the Philippians have received. And, uh, G and, and having trusted in Christ, God, who begins that work, will hold that and treasure that commitment that we made to him and guarantee that we will spend eternity with him. But I believe the good work here that is to be completed, verse 6, relates to what Paul says in verse 5 and verse 7. If you've got a Bible, have a look. Verse 5, he talks about your partnership in the gospel ministry. And in verse 7, he talks about sharing in God's grace with me, defending and confirming the gospel. So what is this good work? This good work is gospel work. It's gospel work. It's sharing with others the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he offers, and why we need to respond to him. And the Philippians have already begun with this good work. They have partnered with Paul. They've supported his mission financially. We see that later on in this letter. They have sent gifts through Epaphroditus to him in jail to look after him. And Paul in chapter 4 lists three people who have accompanied him who he calls co-workers in this gospel work. So what is this good work? It is mission. It is evangelism. It is faith sharing. It's getting the good news out there. It's telling other people what we know. It's giving away what we have received. The great New Testament theologian Gerald Hawthorne says, God will accomplish his good work by advancing the gospel, by human means, by the Philippians church. This is the thing. God is on a mission. God is on a mission to bring the good news of salvation through Jesus to us. And God wants us all to join in. We join in with his mission. It's his good work. It's his gospel work. But he relies on us to tell others. 
Magnus Magnuson of Mastermind would say, I've started, so I'll finish. Remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember that. I've started, so I'll finish. Don't worry, I've started the sermon and I'm soon to finish. But Paul says, you've started a good work. You need to finish it. He may be in jail, but they're not. They're not chained and they need to get it out there and to share this good news. They need to look up in lockdown. They need to look out in lockdown. They need to get out and share the gospel. Start what you finished. Or even finish what you started. Just seeing if you're keeping up. 30 odd years ago, I left the meat trade to be an evangelist. And I went and worked with a man called Corky Davy. Funny name. It was actually his real name. And he was an amazing evangelist. Traveled the world sharing Jesus. And he actually came to faith through John Stott in the 60s. And for a couple of years I worked with him. My whole focus was telling people about Jesus, telling people the gospel, introducing strangers to God. And then over the, over the years, I got more involved in church. I planted a church. That was about evangelism and mission and a good work. But then I turned kind of inwards to the life of the church, administration and pastoring and teaching, all of which are essential and necessary. But at some point, somehow, my looking out uh, got dimmed and my focus was all looking in to myself or to those I was ministering to. Started writing books, started getting invites to speak in places, and on one occasion I was back in Bristol speaking. All the churches had come together for a great big celebration, and I was the speaker. And Corky Davy came, even old man then, he was retired. And I went over to him and I said, hello, Corky, thanks so much. I was thrilled. I thought he was going to say, I'm so thrilled. Look at what's become of you. Here you are, churches together, loads of people speaking. And all he said to me was, you were an evangelist once. You were an evangelist once. He said nothing else. His wife was slightly embarrassed. She started talking to me. I then had to go and preach. That was about three years ago. You were an evangelist once. What, what, what was he saying? He was saying, you, you started a good work, but you finished. Taken up all the time looking in and servicing rather than sharing the good news. Around that time, I was on a retreat with the staff and as I sat uh, in Chris Gilley's old house by the window, Mark Brickman said, Simon, there's a kingfisher on the other side of the window above your head, just hovering. I said, kingfisher. And he gave me a word and he said, you're meant to be a fisherman. A you're a fisherman of the king. And you're meant to go and catch people for the Lord. But the three Christmases since then, someone not knowing anything to do with that has sent me, what, first year, a painting of a kingfisher. Second year, a glass engraving of a kingfisher. Third year, a photograph this Christmas of a kingfisher. I've got the point. Kingfisher. God started a work 
Sometimes we can get slightly distracted from it. Paul cared for the church. He was writing a letter. He was a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, and so on. But he never forgot the central thing, that we exist to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. In lockdown, we need to unlock the gifts that God's given us. We need to bring to completion the good work that he started in us. We need to unchain that melody. The band would like to come up. Paul is in lockdown, but he's looking up and he's looking out. And this unchained melody from the man in chains is thankful, it's prayerful, and it's always missional. This week, saints, let's be thankful, let's be prayerful, and let's be missional people thinking who we can introduce to Jesus. We're going to sing again a beautiful song, Christ be magnified. Amen.